Welcome to the Mentium Matters podcast, where we talk about leadership, life, and the transformative power of mentoring. This is Solveig Brown, and today I am so fortunate to be joined by James Prince. We are going to talk about executive presence and Black History Month. James will also share some best practices to take your leadership to the next level. Before we begin, let me formally introduce James. James Prince is the Director of Client Success and Strategic Client Experience at ADP. For over 30 years, James has been a noteworthy leader in the human capital management space. Possessing a broad range of executive experience, James has a lifelong commitment to developing leaders. As general manager, he effectively led large diverse teams for iconic Fortune 500 brands such as Delta Airlines, Walmart, and Costco Wholesale. James served as the VP of Operations for the National Black MBA Association's Atlanta chapter. He was also the Director of Leaders of Tomorrow, where he created a whole new approach to youth mentoring. James is the founder and chief motivation officer of Beyond Mediocrity Leader Development, BMLD, a consulting firm focused on self-actualization, social activism, and business acumen. James lives in the Atlanta area with his beautiful wife and their four exceptional children. Welcome, James. I am so happy to have you as a guest today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. And Sobe, I'm just so grateful that Mentium sees the need for executive presence discussions, and particularly in this month of February, our focus on DEI, specifically for African-American history. Oh, totally. So James, one of the reasons we wanted to have you as a guest for this month where we're focusing on executive presence is you have such a strong executive presence and you have helped your clients and mentees expand their executive presence. What are the most important things someone can do to intentionally develop their executive presence? I mean, first of all, I think that's a very valuable question to ask. And while I certainly won't claim to be an expert, it's very, I'm very grateful and I appreciate the fact that others see me that way. I think that the first thing or maybe the most important thing is realizing that it matters. For executive presence is seen or interpreted as, and I know there's, there's a great book, which we'll refer to, I'm sure, during this conversation. But I mean, all different types of ethos in terms of what, how you come across to other people is what really deems you one with executive presence. So if you saw me that way, it was probably because I had some sense of awareness that I need to come across with confidence. The way that the book refers to it as is gravitas, some sense of knowing that you deserve to be uh, in a discussion about executive presence at a table, boardroom table, not in a sense that you deserve it. No one owes us anything. Everything we get, I hope, is earned. But gravitas and confidence shouldn't be the same as arrogance. But I feel like knowing that it is something that matters. That's probably the most important. But the other thing that I think may be probably given more focus than it should is appearance. But let's face it, right before we, we gathered together, I had on a blue shirt and I didn't have on a blazer. And I thought, wait a minute, I can't be on a call or on a podcast discussion and possibly on video and talk about executive presence and not look like it matters in my appearance. So I went and I changed my shirt. I felt that the blue was a little too dark. So I brought a little bit of a pink or a pastel color. And that was only because of why I felt it was important now, depending on the type of company you're working with, or maybe the kind of uh, interaction you're having, if it's 
I couldn't go to a park in a meeting for a team building activity with a blazer and a shirt. You know, I think that even then you can find a way to, to make sure that you dress the part, so to speak. But appearance is a huge part of it. And then the last part that I'll say is important to me is communication. It is not just what you say, but the way you say things. You know, it matters all of this together to make the right impression. And let's face it, you've got a couple of executives by title that sometimes aren't the greatest communicators. If there's a presence that you want to create, let it be something that people will remember you for in a more positive light. And so if you're upbeat, if you smile when you speak, if you use great eye contact, good voice inflection, those are things that I think can help create that type of executive presence that you want and that will pe- that will have people talking about you in a positive way after the fact. So hope that helps. Oh, yeah, that's really helpful. And then the book that James is referring to, it's called Executive Presence by Sylvia Ann Hewlett. And it's really just a great resource for some of those pillars of executive presence. So James, what do you see as some of the challenges for someone who is not part of the dominant group, let's say who's not white and male in Mm -hmm. terms of executive presence? Gosh, there's so many different challenges, but I guess I can speak on behalf of my own. And it depends, again, on the type of environment you're in. For example, I'm a male and I'm with Mentium. Mentium is a woman-led, female-led company. There's a certain amount of discomfort that I could easily have being one of two or three people in a room and I'm the only gender. It it applies to me as as an African-American man, as a, a man of color. And one of those challenges is just acknowledging that you have a right to be at that table. You have a right to be in the conversation. You are invited to that boardroom discussion. And a lot of people, they struggle with that, at least from conversations I've had a part of. I've been in many meetings where I was the only Black man, the only person of color. And this is in rooms of executives. And we're talking 20, 30 people. So if you think about if I'm the only one out of 20 or 30, that's not really a real great representation. I could easily feel like, am I really supposed to be here? Because this feels like I'm out of place. I've had to tell myself and challenge myself to say that, no, you were here because you're not just credential, but you've got the things that are necessary. Integrity, you come prepared. Those are the kinds of things that you feel challenged with. I say something else to that point is the fear of being seen as an imposter. Imposter syndrome, as they call it. The one concern that I know I've had, and again, I can't speak for all Black men, all men even, but uh, thinking that people may assume that I'm there because I'm a diverse candidate or because they need to have equal representation. Because when you think that's the reason why you're there, then it discredits the real value that you bring. And so while I may have a few degrees, I still have had moments when I question, did anybody even care that I was educated? Is it truly just to say that they've got someone that looks like me on the call or someone in the conversation? And I've learned to just appreciate that, even if that may have been the motivation Part of what I feel people of color have got to do, even women, because let's face it, businesses aren't all women-owned or women-led the way Mentium is. There's a lot of companies that are led by men and that are, as you say, majority. You can easily feel like that's probably a discredit to you and your ability that you're there because you're a diversity hire. And they could have even told you that, but guess what? So what? If someone were to tell me that if we didn't have proper representation, so we needed to have someone like you, that would be a little dangerous if someone were bold enough to say it. But I take it as a sign that this is actually something I'm going to use to my advantage. 
And so when you're in those situations where you're the only, and you may even have been accused of being a diversity hire, I say, yeah, and it doesn't matter really what got me here. The fact is that I've got the skills, I've got the aptitude, I've got the acumen to be able to stay. And those are just some of the challenges that I face. I'm sure some of the other mentees or mentors have had different types of challenges. I think you did a really good job of explaining kind of all the extra things that someone could be thinking about if you are one of the only kind of person in the room like that. I know so many of the mentees have talked about how they don't have senior leadership that looks like them. And so that they feel that's intimidating and they wonder, how can I rise up if no one else looks like me in this Mm -hmm. position? So I think that's really great to highlight what that feels like. One of the things I hear so many mentees talk about is how do you have good executive presence in a virtual setting? Absolutely. Yes. I think to that very point, if you were sitting in a meeting with an executive or even if it were colleagues or peers and you were in an actual conference room, would you feel comfortable with a hoodie? Even though it's a very casual setting, unless you work for Under Armour or Nike or some of these types of manufacturers or retailers, I think that it's probably important for you to think about what if I was in the room with that individual, those individuals, as opposed to being on camera? would I come dressed this way? And a lot of times the answer would be no. So that's one of the rules of thumb I have is, and I mentioned this, when I first joined this discussion and placed my camera on, I knew that I was, I had a business shirt, yes, but I knew it was a little dark. I knew that I was going to possibly be on camera and I did not have a blazer. Even though I had several suits in the closet, I just didn't take the time to do it. So the first thing you can do is realize That just because you're comfortable and just because this is how you've led your calls all day long, depending on the type of interaction, it's okay to go and change. And I think that's something that people underestimate is that there is a very different type of impression that you make, even if it is virtual. And I'll give you a case in point. I'm fortunate to be in a really good company at ADP. And so while I have some brand recognition, there were people that I recently interviewed with that I knew fairly well. So it was easy for me to be comfortable coming to an interview for a job that I felt I was competitive for, that I could come in a lot more casual tone and my body language. But I felt like that would be detriment to this opportunity because there was never a guarantee that I would get that job. So one of the things that I heard, fortunately, after the fact that the job was offered was what helped me stand out from some of the other candidates was that although we were all virtual, I'm the only one that showed up with a shirt and a tie and a blazer. Wow. And, uh, you know, yeah. And the fact that my, my VP told me that those were notes from the other panelists, they said that and it was literally written that another individual came to the meeting with a shirt, but you're at home. You couldn't get a shirt and tie or you couldn't get a blazer. I think he said those were notes that he saw from the uh, recruiter. These are people who made the decision to offer me the job. And let's face it, if you're wanting to make that type of impression, think about the person that you're interviewing with. If there's a potential for them to influence your career one way or another, what impression did you really want to make? And I'm glad that I chose to wear a shirt and tie. It was very uncomfortable. I've gotten, just like everyone else, a lot more casual with the way that I like to appear. But I knew that matter. And to hear a hiring manager tell me that it did. I think is huge. The only other thing I'll add, just being very positive with your tone of voice. I said this earlier with your appearance, but you can show up on camera and look like you don't want to be there. And that can make a very bad impression on people. I think a lot of people, they take 
advantage of the no camera option. And so once you turn that camera off, you begin to multitask. That's not necessarily the best impression either. If you really want to appear engaged, it's okay to leave that camera on. And guess what? We all know this. When you're being watched, you do less fidget, fidgeting. You don't multitask as much, at least I don't. And I feel like those are the kinds of things that being in a virtual environment, we can easily just leverage and take advantage of in a good way. Yeah, that is great advice. And what you're speaking to also about leaving your camera on is that kind of that sense of presence that here I am and you have my full attention. As you know, we are celebrating Black History Month, which is a time to honor the history of African-Americans, recognize progress that has been made, and also a time to commit to strengthening year-round efforts to further diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts and results. James, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges African-American employees face in the workplace, and how can leaders do a better job of addressing these challenges? Yeah, gosh, this is really, to me, I'll start with this. The fact that it's even questionable in 2023, whether or not there needs to be acknowledgement. Let's face it, Black History Month only started in 1976. It was not officially uh, something we observed in this country for the majority of the time that we all know. I was well alive at that point and did not know at six years old in 1976 when it started. But I can tell you that it's just as important today as it was then. And one of the reasons why I think it is important is because of the political environment that we're in right now. There's a lot, and I don't want to necessarily give any kind of judgment or assessment on where people sit on in terms of political beliefs. But when you've got in 2023, efforts being made to pass law in certain states, limit or preventing teaching on African-American history, there are leaders today, just a week or two ago, that have said that African-American studies and as a part of advanced placement programs lack relevance, educational value. And to me, as a Black man, that doesn't really say a lot about how this individual and those who support and are standing in rallies and cheering on that type of personality, how they feel about me or other people who are described as Black or African-American. That's a mouthful, but let me just qualify what I'm saying. When I start to see that there's an effort not talk about what is actual history, because it, it, it demonizes in some perspectives one type of group over another, then that to me, it says that there's a lack of knowledge. And again, I'm not here to make it a political statement. I just feel that anyone, no matter which side of the aisle you're on, when you make a statement that things that are truthful and that just are part of our history should not be discussed, I think that's just ignorance. So when you think about people like me in a workplace at an ADP, one thing I can tell you, the ADP is on the complete opposite spectrum. We embrace diversity. We don't try and discredit. We look for ways. As a matter of fact, there are a few links that I even sent you earlier this week that we provide by way of our Spark newsletter that companies can do to be more inclusive. But in this environment where there are certain politicians who want to literally say that they do not feel that type of push for diversity, equity, and inclusion is welcomed in their state. That is why we need a Black History Month. So I've said a lot just to say that. Now, in terms of how I handle or what can be done, being open, being candid, having conversations like this to say, what should I feel uncomfortable talking about a somewhat, uh, I guess, sticky subject, any kind of racial type of discussion? I'm really being careful not to say the wrong thing. That's really how difficult it is sometimes to talk about this. But I feel like if employees 
are encouraged, the psychological safety is provided, then we will all feel a little bit better about the conversation. It may not be comfortable, no, but African-American history is just a small part of, of American history. I actually, one of the notions from, I forgot the doctor's name, but she wrote the 1619 Project. And I highly recommend that. I've got the magazine from the New York Times, but she talks about the fact that American history, African-American history shouldn't really just be a focus on African-American history. It's just American history. We happen to be a huge part of a lot of the things that, that we're ashamed of. And having people enslaved is not something that, that you would think people would feel proud about. Yes, I agree. But that doesn't mean you ignore it or pretend like it never happened. What we can do is use healthy dialogue and talk about where we are. So small things like Black History Month, I think are great. And then during this month, encouraging people to say, hey, can I come and talk to you real quickly about something that really bothers me and that even could have happened within the workplace? Someone who is not a person of color, who's not Black, but is open to having those kinds of discussions are things that I would look for. And so I'd imagine other people that are on this, uh, listening to this podcast would probably feel the same, that even if I'm not comfortable with it, if I can come to you and you give me a sense that there's a safety in me having this discussion, not looking for answers, just wanting to talk about how it makes me feel when I see or watch or hear things, that makes me feel more engaged. It makes me want to be a better employee for a company like ADP. I tell you, there's so many wonderful things that I think we do. And it's not just to give a plug for ADP, but we do this very well. We've been recognized by a lot of different agencies for what we do right. But there's a lot of other companies that are doing just as well. So if we can get more companies to do those kinds of things, I think that would go a long way. Yeah. James, in one of your blog posts, I really like how you phrased it. You talked about productive conversations and that it's time to shift away from avoidance, passive acceptance, and combative confrontation and move toward active participation, peer intention, and proactive engagement. I really like what you're saying, that it begins with having those conversations when they're uncomfortable and that with practice, you may get more comfortable having them, but they are essential to be able to have those conversations. Yes, absolutely. And I think if you don't mind, I'd love to take this analogy. I use it on a lot of different things that I share with people to help them feel that when you start, it may not feel great, but as you continue, it may get easier. And the analogy I use is the resistance training. If you've ever worked out, everybody, we're in February now, so hopefully everyone's still sticking to their New Year's resolution of losing a little weight or working out more. When you think about lifting weights, it may not be comfortable, especially if you haven't done it in a long time. But think about how it relates to conversations on race. If you've never talked about it, honestly, then it's going to be hard to pick that up and just all of a sudden think that you can lift it. It's like taking a 20-pound weight when you haven't been to the gym in 20 years, that's probably not the safest way to start. You're going to get hurt in the process. Your body's not conditioned. But if you start with five pounds and then maybe over time, just work at it and then add another five and then work yourself up to 10 and then double that, eventually you'll get to that 20. But it really does take some very measured judgment on how you start. And I feel that just like with a weight and just like working out, in the end, you'll be stronger. Conversations, relationships will be stronger when we start with a small weight. If it's really just talking about, hey, did you see what happened in the news or what's your thoughts on what happened with Tyree? Those are ways you can start small. And not necessarily go in and expect someone to give answers, but just have a little bit of that resistance. And eventually, the more you have those conversations, the stronger you feel, the less uncomfortable you may be. And hopefully, we all grow stronger together. Totally. And then one of the other things that that is 
affects a lot of people is the unconscious bias. As a leader, how do you address that? And do you have any tips for leaders of how to address mm -hmm. that within your team? Yeah, I think one of the first things we can all do is admit that we have it. Every single person does have unconscious bias. Admitting it is the first step to healing and resolution, you know, and so I feel like you may not have bias toward a gender or a race or an ethnicity, but we all have them. And I, unfortunately, and I have to admit this, I have a bias against teenagers for some reason. And I've got two of my own. I've got four kids, as you mentioned in my intro, but two of those four are teenagers. And uh, they're in the middle of that point where they are truly trying to figure it out. And so I have a bias about the way that I think they operate. I have these opinions. And what I've had to do is tell myself, do not treat my daughters, both of them teens, as if they are the stereotypical teen. What I've had to do, and this is what I think all of us can do in the workplace or even in our families, is see each person as an individual. Both of my daughters have very different personalities. Both of them do have a few of those stereotypical traits of a teenager, but they are not the stereotypical teenager that I've created in my mind. Having acknowledged that I did have the bias, I've been open and told my wife about it before they both got into the 13, 14, 15 year old. I told my wife and they were seven and eight and nine. I don't like teenagers, but I had a chance to get to that stage where I am now that having addressed it, acknowledged it, admitted, I'm now able to say, okay, that was wrong. And so right. what am I going to do differently? See them as individuals. And that's how I think we can all do at work or in our professional settings is just see each person as the individual by name and who they specifically not and not every and I hate to say this, but you know, the name Karen, I feel so bad for any woman whose name is Karen, particularly a white woman whose name is Karen, because I think that it's given such a bad reputation to that stereotype of a person. But if you see that individual as even if her name is Karen, and she is white, and she may have a similar traits from what you've seen in all of the social media, see that individual Karen, as the Karen that you're talking to and not assume that she's got any other trait that may be affiliated with what you've heard before. They're not all Karens are alike. And I've got two Karens on my team and I love them. They're nothing like what I've seen in terms of what you hear about in the news. But I can tell you that I've been conscious to be very mindful that what if thinking that all of a sudden, do I have to change my name? I actually saw that in the news that, that women are changing their name. But I think it's because they feel the same kind of pressure. They're being now treated a certain way just because of what other people believe they may be. And it could be based solely on a name. But anyway, I say all of that to say that if we can be a lot more deliberate and acknowledging our own bias, and even for the unbiased, you know, not knowing what you don't know, or you're not aware of, be open open to the fact that I could be wrong about certain people. And so let's just figure out what it is about them that I can learn to appreciate and go from there. If someone extended that offer to you, I'm sure you'd feel a lot more better about yourself. Why can't we extend that same offer to others? Yeah, I love that. And it goes back to having those conversations and like seeing people as individuals and just getting to know people as they are. Yeah. James, in our prep meeting for this interview, you used the term DEI fatigue. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what DEI fatigue is and yeah. offer some suggestions for how organizations can move beyond DEI fatigue to protect and prioritize DEI? Yeah, yeah, it, I, it is a real term nowadays. And again, we've got multiple articles on our Spark Newsletter 380P that give you some suggestions on how to confront it. And to some extent, embrace it as well, because let's face it, ever since 2020, when we were all stuck at home and saw the video of George Floyd, I can tell you that was one of the most difficult things for me to watch. 
all of a sudden DEI became the new initiative for most companies. Here we are in 2023. And like most things in America pop culture, it doesn't last very long. But this isn't the latest hit song from a singer. This is a social movement. And I think that a lot of companies probably are feeling like we've gotten it. We know that it's an initiative. It's on our website. We've got a focus now. We've got a target for how many we'll have represented on the board. That's not enough. The challenge that I'll put out there is that if you think you're tired of talking about it, I'll be 53 in two months. Most of my life, I've been very aware that I fit in the category of a diverse individual. And if I've ever been tired of talking about or giving explanation of why I feel the way I feel or giving justification for being upset or then that that should give you some relief because if you've not had to deal with it sent until the last three years add 50 years to that and imagine what it's like totally yeah and 24 7 yeah 24 yeah. 7 I constantly have to wonder and I gauge you know who's around me when I'm in Target or if I'm even in a parking lot I try my best to look presentable or non-threatening to anyone that could see me as a black man walking through a parking lot with a hoodie on as threatening. That's tiring. It's exhausting. Trust me. But I've learned because it's been my life to just deal with it and make the most of the experience. So I think if you have others who say that, gosh, it's just haven't we had enough talk about diversity? Can we move on? I think that it's going to be a very difficult workplace if that is how certain leaders are operating. If you think because you've got a website reference to what your DEI goals are or how you support certain communities, or that you give a certain amount of dollars, you're going to learn down the road that if that was not with pure intent, like we talked about earlier, you're going to face something and it become a wake up call for you to have to do more. Fatigue is exactly what it is. When you've heard about it, you've talked about it and you're ready to give up. The key is, and things that you can do is not give up. Find those kinds of resource groups that you have, hopefully in, in most corporations, ask those kinds of questions. I think that to be very honest, if diversity is not a part of every agenda item for a corporate board meeting or for even if you're meeting with your staff, if you don't have some kind of bullet point that's going to address diversity, equity and inclusion, then that's a good sign that it doesn't matter to you. And so that's one thing that I think you could do. But then ask those individuals, not just black people, but that is different. Do you feel we're doing a good job? Engagement pulses or surveys, 360s, those types of, of events can help give you some sense of where the client or where the employee base is. And if you listen and they tell you honestly, you'll probably get a whole lot of things that you can do differently. They'll tell you what they want. If they want more FaceTime, we have what we call coffee and conversation events. You've got executives, senior VPs and leaders, business unit leaders who take one hour out of a month. It's on a monthly basis. And we would rotate here with our one of our resource groups called Cultivate. And we would have people come and they would sit and learn from an executive what it took for them to get where they are. And this wasn't just Black leaders. These were leaders from all across the board. One of them was our CEO, Maria Black. She actually came and sat for an hour and just gave her story. She's Swedish. And Maria is not Black, but she was at an event that was sponsored by Cultivate, a, a group of Black employees. And she spent time just talking to us. That's something that a lot of leaders, uh, they could learn from. And that that's actually one of the many reasons why I love and respect Maria, because she has always been that type of leader well before she became CEO. But I don't want to ramble. Those are just a couple of things that I would do differently if they're not being done now. 
Yeah, totally. And then I liked on the ADP blog post about how that oftentimes organizations fail to benchmark their DEI goals and then leadership isn't held accountable. Right. Uh, and so I, I think those are really great ways to start thinking about it of how to make it more of what mm -hmm. you talked about on the ADP yes. website is that it's a strategy, yes. not just a program, but it's a way to make your business better, stronger, yes. support all the people and create a culture of innovation that thrives. Yes. And if I could add one more thing to this notion of a strategic approach, there's a huge retailer that I really respect. I've noticed over the last three years that every time I walk into their store, I'll just say it's Target. They deserve to get credit. So I walk into Target and I've noticed almost every month there's a, a focus right in that entrance. When you walk in the door, you may find a Starbucks on the left or the right, but there's a display on the main corner when you walk in after you get your shopping cart. And this month, it's a focus on Black history. But what I've noticed in the past is that there's been an LGBTQ corner. I think it was in the month of June or July. And I think that's something that is very strategic. And as opposed to just saying, let's just have a day that we give folks who fit this criteria an opportunity to feel valued. They have actually put their money where their mouth is. They've given you know an end cap and space within their stores. And many stores I've been to that have a focus on that group that may be a part of the DEI is if people are business leaders are really smart about it, they'll realize that strategy is typically focused on making money, being profitable. If you didn't think that people of all colors, people of all different sexual orientations, different genders bring in money when you cater to them, then that's something that you can add to your strategy. Because I can tell you, my wife buys a lot more from Target and the clothing and apparel than she used to, because there are pictures of Princess Tiana. My daughter sees a t-shirt that looks like her. And so that's a t-shirt that we would not have bought two years ago, three years ago. I mean, that's why my wife's told me that. So when you want to be strategic and you want to make money, even if you're a nonprofit, you can find ways to do this, but make DEI a part of your strategy because everybody will show you their value for who you are to them. More people are going to buy. I'm not sure what target stock is, but I can guarantee you that people in the black community, you've got a lot more people that are talking about it through social media. We all have family and friends and they all find it extremely valuable that there is representation when they go in the store. That's just one example, but that is a strategic approach. And I'm sure that they're not doing it just for the dollars. But let's face it, when you make those kinds of moves, it is going to add to your bottom line. You'll have a, not, a lot higher profit and your sales are going to go through the roof as well. So anyway, I just wanted to take that time to share that story. Yeah, totally. That representation does matter. Does. And that even in terms of your workforce, diversity of thought matters in yes. figuring yes. out the best things, figuring out what people's perspectives in contributing to the bottom line or the strategy. So James, we have time for three final questions. Okay. Um, the first one is, do you have any habits or practices that you feel have contributed to your success? Yes. One of them is it's to agitate. So I consider myself a, well, what John Lewis called like making good trouble. I've been one that never can sit still and hear that there is something that should be challenged and not challenge it. I feel like people, they need to have that courage to speak up. And I can tell you that, again, there have been many places where I was the only, it didn't stop me from sharing my point of view. If you're there, if you're in a room you deserve to be there. You have a right to be there. So then use that opportunity to say something. If you hear that 
there's a chance for you to add value. I think that's one habit that I have. Some people may not like it. My wife, she has a poster of Frederick Douglass and it's got the three words, agitate, agitate, agitate. And sometimes I can be a little agitating in, in, in a negative way, but for most, it is for the good. It's truly to challenge others and myself to do more, to be better, to go beyond mediocrity. That's what BMLD is all about. Yeah. Being more than what you are and not having to accept average just because everyone's doing it. So what? But let's go further. What's the opposite of good? Great. And so if you can be good, but then great is still an option, go one step further and have a great conversation when you can. Oh, yeah, that is great. And James, what would your advice be to up and coming leaders? Oh, gosh, that's loaded. I'd say stay humble. I love that. Stay humble. Yes. And then final question, do you have a favorite saying, quote, or motto? The one that comes to mind that I generally use is that to whom much is given, much is required. And so I feel like if there was anything that I can live my life by, it's knowing that, and it's almost chicken and the egg, which came first, you know, that I was given much and so much is required or much is required because I was given. If people have been given, for example, this opportunity to share on a podcast. I was very grateful and humbled to be very honest that you would ask, but what can I take from this conversation and how can I, someone else is already asking me when I get done, I'd share with one of my colleagues that I was doing this. She wants to have me pass the link on that. That's the whole point. What we do should always be with intention. And if you think about the fact that I've been given an opportunity to have a conversation with Mentium to whom much is given, much is required. I'm required to share this message on executive presence and to encourage other people to talk about what is not necessarily a comfortable discussion, but much needed. That would probably be the first one I pick, just because it's the one that I probably quote every other day. To whom much is given, much is required. And it's straight from the Bible. Oh, yeah, James, I love that quote. And I think we can all think about of how to give back more. We've mm -hmm. all been given so much. How can you share that with other people. James, thank you so much for being my guest today. And thank you for being a mentor for Mentium. You have given us so many actionable ideas for improving executive presence. I also really appreciate you sharing your insights on the challenges that African-Americans face in the workplace. You're suggestions for having productive conversations and eliminating DEI fatigue are fantastic. And I really hope that people will use them. James is a keynote speaker and executive coach and his company BMLD also does change management and staff development. You can go to his company's website beyondmediocrityld.com for more information. James, in this discussion today, talked about some articles related to Black History Month, DEI, and facilitating a truly inclusive culture. These articles will be available on the show notes for this episode, and you can also find them on the ADP Spark blog. Thank you all for listening to this Mentium Matters podcast. We have many great guests lined up, and we look forward to having you back next time.